What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And yes, it does. I'm Brian Sullivan, and welcome to The Exchange. Call it Semiconductor Shortage Summit. Big tech at the White House with some big-time problems as things that you probably never think about are causing huge problems in American business. In fact, the White House calling the shortage a national security issue. Plus, apparently the third time is the charm why Microsoft is paying $16 billion for a company that's been rumored to be bought out by both Apple and Samsung in the last decade. And are we closing in on a crypto race to the bottom? What's happening in the digital world that has real-world implications for some big names? All that and much more over the course of just the next 59 and a half minutes. We're going to begin with Dom Chu and your money. And Dom, I saw the very rare unch. The, the S&P 500 momentarily was literally 0.0 D-Day's GPA. That aside, it has been a pretty doggone good month of April. It has been a very good month of April so far, up nearly 4% for the month of April so far for the S&P 500. That's a decent stretch for any month. On the whole, it's only been about a couple of weeks now. So keep an eye on the S&P 500, still above that 4,100 level right now. And again, for the Dow and the S&P, maybe the marginal moves don't matter as much right now. Uh, A period of digestion. Both of these are at record highs, near record highs that we set at the end of last week. So watch that. The Nasdaq composite off just fractionally as well. One of the big stocks that we're talking about all day today has to do with Chinese Internet. Alibaba shares are actually up about 8-9% today so far. You can see they're up 23% over the course of the last year. The reason why it's important, Chinese regulators have handed out a massive, record-breaking $2.8 billion fine for Alibaba, but that was less than some analysts had feared, and it might clear the way for them to actually resume some normal-ish type operations in China. That's the reason why those shares are higher. And by the way, though, the Crane Shares China Internet ETF is still up big, but it hasn't really moved that well. It's still decidedly in a downtrend. Big technology and media stocks still very much a focus for Chinese regulators. We'll see if that sticks around as a theme for all of 2021 as well. And then check out what's happening in chips, not because of the summit going on at the White House, but because NVIDIA and Intel There's news there. NVIDIA is actually up. You can see there the white line moving this way. Intel intraday right at the same time going down because NVIDIA has just announced that they are going to start producing CPUs, central processing units for computers that are going to go into data centers. The reason why it's important is Intel is actually a big player in that data center CPU market. Now, NVIDIA wants in on the action. Intel shares take a dive on that. NVIDIA shares going higher. We'll see whether or not that has any lasting impact on a trend. There's a big, big move in semiconductors intraday. NVIDIA, Intel, two stocks to watch. Brian, I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, I'm old enough, Dom, to remember two weeks ago when Intel was the hot new young thing because new CEO and they're going to all of a sudden... NVIDIA steals the thunder. Manufacturing, it's amazing how fast it Yeah, manufacturing plants in Arizona expanded capacity. They're going to get into outsourced business, foundry-type business. So, again, so much happening in semiconductors right now, Brian. Certainly is. In fact, you don't even know how much, Dom Chu. Thank you, or maybe you do, because Dom just told you our top business story, one that has been impacting everything from big tech to big trucks, a serious shortage in semiconductors. President Biden meeting with executives from 19 companies to talk about what is needed to solve the problem longer term. Problem the White House says is a national security issue. Perhaps all this could bring more jobs, more manufacturing back to the United States. Kayla Tausche has been on the story literally from the very beginning this morning and joins us now with where we stand right now. Kayla. 
Well, Brian, uh, earlier in uh, the 12 o'clock hour, a meeting got underway at the White House with those companies and the head of the National Security Council, as well as the National Economic Council and the Secretary of Commerce to discuss uh, exactly that issue, that global semiconductor shortage and what can be done here in the U.S. to ramp up manufacturing capacity here and to solve that shortage in the short term. That is an issue that the administration has been studying for a couple months uh, as spurred by an executive order that the president signed uh, back in February. And we've learned that some of the things they're considering are stress testing supply chains or requesting that certain companies uh, stockpile chips or other critical types of inventory that they might need to avoid this type of shortage going forward. Now, we expect President Biden to be meeting very briefly with this group of executives momentarily. The pool has just gathered uh, to step into uh, to that event to show us exactly how that conversation is proceeding. Uh, but just a few moments ago, the press secretary, Jen Psaki, was asked about the nature of this meeting and what the administration is hoping to accomplish. Here's what she said. One of the reasons the president uh, is stopping by this meeting that our national security advisor and our NEC director are holding this afternoon is to hear directly from companies about the impacts, what would help them most through this period of time, and the shortage that, uh, as you all have reported on, has impacted a range of industries across the country. So uh, this isn't a meeting where we expect a decision or an announcement to come out of, but a part of our ongoing engagement and discussion about how to best address this uh, issue over the long term, but also over the short term. So no particular decision or announcement, but there could be discussion of a specific dollar figure, and that is $50 billion. That is the amount of money that the administration is requesting from Congress to invest in domestic manufacturing, specifically of semiconductors. And it's an amount of money that Boston Consulting Group said could create 70,000 jobs, could spur the investment in 19 of those foundries that you just heard Dom talking about, and could increase the U.S.'s market share of new manufacturing capacity to 24 percent. That's essentially doubling it from where it is now. We'll see what the president says in just a few moments when we hear from him uh, at that meeting. Brian. Right, we I just did the quick math. 50 billion, 70,000 jobs. That is, according to my calculator, seven hundred and fourteen thousand two hundred eighty five dollars per job. Kayla Tausche, thank you very much. So why don't we take a look at how the chip stocks have performed recently as this meeting at the White House kicks off. Sector has a nice run this year. The SMH, one of the bigger ETFs for the space, up 37%. Inside of it, you got LAM up 21%. Intel, still hot, 31%. And Western Digital, up about 30% as well. AMD, kind of bringing down the averages. And in fact, it is down 12%. Well, the Information Technology Industry Council, better known as ITI, thankfully, has six members at the White House Summit. And they are a veritable who's who in the technology and semiconductor worlds. You got Intel, Samsung, Taiwan Semi, along with Google, Dell, and HP. Joining us now with more on what the trade group is recommending is Jason Oxman, CEO of ITI. Jason, what do you and your constituents want from the president and from the American taxpayer? Well, Brian, as you just heard, this meeting is enormously important to address the long-term solutions to a short-term problem. The short-term problem created by the pandemic is unprecedented demand for semiconductors. We need to address that with long-term solutions. So the short answer is we're asking the president and Congress to fund manufacturing capabilities for semiconductors in the U.S. That $50 billion figure you heard bandied about is a, a great start. Uh, it's the kind of investment we need to make. We need to encourage investment in manufacturing capability here in the United States for economic and national security reasons. And that's what we're really focused on telling the president about today. Absolutely. Listen, we, we need to have it here. And by the way, we do have some here and we could always use more, I guess. I just did that quick math, Jason. Explain to our audience why, if it is so important, they have to pay for it and not the companies. Well, the companies certainly are willing to make those investments. What we're looking to have the United States do uh, is invest in the kind of manufacturing capability that has been increasingly done outside of the U.S. It's actually more expensive for companies to build semiconductor manufacturing capability in the U.S. than it is elsewhere in the world. 
because countries like China, regions like the EU are making those kind of investments in supporting manufacturing. Look, these companies are spending anywhere from 10 to $30 billion to build fabs to construct manufacturing of semiconductors. We want that to happen in the U.S. We want the U.S. investment to focus on companies like Intel, but also to encourage international companies like Samsung and TSMC to build those manufacturing capabilities here. You're seeing announcements made about that already, Samsung in Texas, TSMC in Arizona, Intel in Arizona as well. We think the kind of investments that the U.S. government can make to support, not to pay for, but to support that manufacturing happening here in the U.S., as well as research and development, workforce development, we think that's important to make us globally competitive to encourage those facilities to be built here in the U.S. Because as I am sure you are aware, Jason, there is a conversation, if you want to call it that, going on about global tax competitiveness. And we're talking about raising the corporate tax rate. I'm not going to ask you to chime in on that. But part of it is the idea that, well, we're seeing, you know, unfair tax advantages around the world. Some countries, as you just noted, are subsidizing or if not just outright sort of owning some of these industries. So you're saying the level, the playing field is not level at all. If I'm Intel, is it how much harder is it to compete with a company that is semi-nationalized? Yeah, our calculus is roughly it's about 30 to 50 percent more expensive now to build a semiconductor facility in the U.S. than it is in some of these other countries that are subsidizing. And you're absolutely right. We have to be sensitive to the tax implications and we're not looking for a tax increase to support this kind of manufacturing investment. But what the U.S. government can do through a combination of direct investment and tax credits is make it a level playing field for companies to build the manufacturing capability here in the U.S. And we think because this is a combination of both an economic issue and a national security issue, and because we've seen unprecedented demand for semiconductors, the return on this kind of investment is going to be multiple fold. Look, the pandemic has highlighted how important it is for us all to be able to work Mm -hmm. from home for our kids to learn from home, for us to be able to access our doctors from home. That's not going to change when the pandemic ends. It's only going to yeah. increase our, our need for those technologies. And semiconductors you- are used, as you know, from across industries. It's the tech sector, it's automotive, it's medical, it's investment in uh, infrastructure for technology like 5G, yeah. artificial intelligence and the like. It's important for all industries. Jason, Jason, I got to jump in. Before we let you go, you, talk, you said national security now a couple of times. I think I know where you're going with this, but quickly, can you explain to our audience why is it a national security issue? Is it because there is very real fear? And let's be honest, we are not friendly with every government in the world that there are very real opportunities for certain things or certain hacks or whatever it might be to be put onto things that are made elsewhere that we thus use in critical technology applications here. That would then be a bad thing. And that's a real technical definition by me. Well, Brian, it's a uh, it's a supply side and a demand side concern on national security. It's it's the uh, the manufacturing itself, and then it's also the use of the products, uh, as you noted. But I think the broader issue is because of the important nature of the semiconductor industry to all industries in the United States, including our own government and the defense industry. The ability to build up that manufacturing capability here in the U.S. and address those supply chain issues in a way that makes that manufacturing capability happen here so we don't have to worry about that global supply chain issue. Um, That's something that will be beneficial to all industries, to the government and to our economy. Jason Oxman, ITI, got the members in the meeting. Look forward to hearing exactly what went down. Jason, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. All right. Well, what's going down right now is a bond auction, 10-year bonds up for auction, of course, yields have been the mover of stocks, so you care. Professor Santelli, what's the grade on this auction? Well, we gave this auction a Charlie Plus, C Plus, just a smidge above average, and that is for 38 billion tens. We earlier also had an average auction for 58 billion three. So, so far today, we've auctioned 96 billion in supply. Let's go through it. The auction for these 10 year notes, well, the auction yield. Dutch auction, everybody gets the same yield, 1.68%, which was just about a half a basis point higher than I saw the 167.5 trade. You know, it would have been a better auction. Everything was pretty much 
average with regard to the metrics, and everybody's always interested in those foreign buyers, and the indirect bidders represent that, and that was actually a little bit below the 10 auction average. Everything else was pretty solid. Tomorrow, of course, we'll finish up with 24 billion 30-year bonds. But if there's a lesson to be garnered here, it's that the auctions are going average, but the supply is moving. And believe me, it's not only going to be U.S. corporations moving supply and governments outside the U.S. moving supply. And maybe that is the issue. When does enough supply become too much? We're not quite there yet. That's what we do know. Brian, back to you. Yeah, not there yet. But I remember a couple weeks ago, you gave one of the auctions an A. Now we're at a C+. Yeah, we'll see where this is. It's not headed in the right direction, Professor. We'll, we'll, we'll find out, I guess, in a couple of days or next week. Rick, thank you very much. Thanks. All right. We got a long way to go. On deck. It is that time again. Yes, earnings season. And this one may be unlike any other in recent history. So what do you really need to know about? Well, maybe the earnings don't even matter. We'll tell you why. Plus, can you hear them now? Microsoft making a statement, paying $16 billion for a speech recognition and health tech company. Should this put Apple and Google on notice? This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, Dow's down 90, so not a great start to the week for the, your, the markets and your money, he said. But it's been a pretty good start to the month of April. If you don't think so, because last week was kind of a snoozer in terms of volume, look at this. NASDAQ 100 is actually up 5% in April. The S&P 500 up nearly 4%. But this week does bring something new. The first look at earnings and guidance from some companies as we all start to look at a post-pandemic world. Because what they say they are seeing could be a real market mover. And with all due respect to the actual earnings and earnings season, they probably don't matter very much. Goldman Sachs strategist saying, quote, the trajectory of the economic recovery will continue to make backward looking metrics less relevant for the forward looking market. That is not my Goldman Sachs voice. And Bank of America Securities warning that a blowout quarter does not mean a blowout market. Here now to discuss all of this and get some stock picks for you, Dan Genter, CEO and CIO of RNC Genter Capital Management, and Katie Nixon, CIO of Northern Trust Wealth Management. Katie, I'll start with you, and I, I don't want to blow our corporate coverage at CNBC out of the water for the next three weeks, because we're going to talk a lot about earnings over the next three weeks, and some certainly, the Teslas, the Apples, they're going to matter like they always do. But as a whole, how much more will the guidance matter versus the backward-looking numbers this quarter. Well, Brian, thanks for having me. And I couldn't agree more with your premise here that the guidance is going to matter quite a bit. And it's not just guidance on the top line, on the growth outlook, but it's guidance on margins. Um, We've heard a lot uh, over the last couple of weeks about inflation pressures, supply chain issues, um, being perhaps a, a dampener on margins. So I think it'll be really important to hear from companies about their forecasts for how transient some of these pressures may be. Yeah, Dan, because a lot of these companies, and I think I'm going to use the official word here, are going to have to guess, right? I mean, visib- we've heard this from many companies. Corporate visibility into the next three to six months or year is hard because we, so- and there's parts of the country that are wide open. We know that there's People here that that are, you know, we're still not. So these companies are really going to have to kind of take a shot in the dark even on their guidance. Well, I think that you're right, Brian. And the the good news is that the company managements for especially these large public companies are very experienced. 
Again, it's not the first time they've dealt with difficult times, even though this might be unprecedented. And so I think that what we're getting in guidance, as Katie mentioned, is that we're, we've been given very conservative guidance by companies because they know how devastating it's going to be, especially at this level of multiples for the market, to, to miss and to disappoint. So we think that we're actually going to have a good earnings season. You know, certainly there, there might be some notable misses, but for the most part, people have been so conservative we think the top line will be good. We'll start to see some expansion in margins. And clearly, from a pricing standpoint in the market, you know, we just we just being turbocharged, in essence, by this life preserver that we have in overall stimulus that's going to continue. So we, even though we're concerned about the multiples, we feel the earnings are going to continue to go forward. And again, we're going to have that support base and that, the, you know, the market will you know, continue to be at these reasonable yeah. levels, unless we get a break in earnings, you know, then we're going to have to deal with it. Katie, I'm going to, I'm going to throw this one at you just crossed. And uh, if you don't want to wade into it, I totally get it. This is one of the weirder headlines I've seen in a while. James Bullard of the Fed apparently is saying that 75% vaccination rates, I'm assuming he means of everybody, would allow for a tapered debate. I find that odd because that would be about 125% coverage in terms of natural exposure plus vaccinations, even more than Fauci. But that aside, the, a Fed official is now commenting on vaccination rates as it pertains to when yields or the Fed funds rate may start to move. Do we, how do we read into that? Well, we're all epidemiologists now, aren't we? Which is so, uh, so interesting. Yes. Um, I think uh, the debate on tapering is going to start in earnest as we get past what will be doubtless very strong numbers on both the growth and likely the inflation fronts. Uh, The base effects will be strong. The data is going to be noisy, but directionally, uh, we're going to see stronger results on the macro front. And so I think it's natural that we'll start to have this debate about when we'll see tapering. Now, most of the other FOMC members who have weighed yeah. in on this have sort of looked at a calendar based sort of, we'll, we'll wait to the end of the year. That will allow us to see how much of what's going on is transitory and how much is not. So I think most investors are, are focused on the end of the year as being the beginning of the beginning of the discussion. Um, so that's interesting, interesting news, um, certainly out of, out of Bullard today. It is. And I, and yeah, Dan, and I, by the way, we got some, you got some picks. I'll give them Philip 66, Lincoln National. Thank you for those. But I want to keep going on this because we have a Fed official. Yes, we're all amateur epidemiologists now who's basically giving you the timeline. That's why it's important. You can look at the back. And by the way, every single night I post the vaccination numbers to my social. We all know that. And I've been more optimistic than most. He's basically telling you when we may get, if you just look at the math, like, oh, we do 10 million a week. Okay, you can kind of guess when we might hit that based on this 75% vaccination number coming out of Bullard. By the way, Dr. Fauci said last week we only need 50% vaccination rates. So Bullard's a little more hawkish on vaccines, too. But this is an interesting comment from a Fed official on many levels. Well, I think, Brian, what you're saying is, has been alluded to. We're, we're all dealing with the science. We're all trying to look at the science. We're all trying to really interpret that science as how it's going to lead the way. But the reality is, is that clearly we're going to open. We're going to have support. We're seeing the reopening trade. We're seeing what we're having in earnings and, and in the employment numbers. And everything is improving. But the reality is that the Fed is not going to act based upon what's coming out in a vaccination report. The Fed is going to act based upon what we have in real numbers as the economy begins to grow, if we have sustainable growth in both employment, as we look at what the inflation numbers are, and and we're going to have a strong GDP. Look, we're likely to have a run rate of 6% as we get to the end of the year, and that's going to be far more important to the Fed and their actions and when they start to unwind than what we're getting daily in vaccination reports. Yeah, but you got a Fed official on the tape making a percentage number, which is even more hawkish than some of the most hawkish that we have heard. Either way, good stuff. Guys, both Dan and Katie, thank you for kind of rolling with that curveball. I thought the headlines were kind of interesting. We'll get you back on again soon. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you. All right. So for more or for any opportunities in this market, since I kind of did turn us into the ditch, check out Goldman Sachs's latest list of cheap stocks with what they view as substantial upside this year. You can head to cnbc.com slash pro for those names. All right, coming up, raise corporate taxes, cut corporate jobs. One CEO sounding the warning about cutting budgets if taxes go up, and he is not alone. Plus, 
As Coinbase works to go public, it's got a bit of a new problem. Trading fees and a race to the bottom. We'll explain both ahead. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir says that he'll lift most of the state's COVID restrictions when two and a half million Kentuckians are vaccinated. That's a little more than half of the state's population, and roughly 900,000 more people need to get their shots to meet the governor's goal. In Minneapolis, a cardiologist says that George Floyd died of asphyxiation after being restrained by police. Dr. Jonathan Rich testified that George Floyd had a strong heart, and he rejected the defense theories that Floyd died of a drug overdose or a cardiac condition. And with the prosecution close to wrapping up its case against Derek Chauvin, see where the trial stands tonight on the News with Shepard Smith. And in Connecticut, a former police chief of the state's largest city has been sentenced to a year in prison. Armando Perez was found guilty of rigging the hiring process that led to his appointment as chief of police for the city of Bridgeport. You're now up to date. Brian, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel Solomon, thank you very much. Well, the president wants to raise corporate taxes from 21% to 28%. Biden wants companies to, quote, do their fair share. But the Business Roundtable is out with a new survey looking at the potential impact of corporate tax hikes on expansion, hiring, and wage growth. And Alon Moy joining us now with the results, which I haven't seen, but I can probably guess, Elon, the Business Roundtable. Just throwing that out there. Yeah, you're a betting man, Brian. You know where this is going. The opposition to higher taxes from the business community is almost unanimous. 98% of the CEOs surveyed by the Business Roundtable said raising the rate from 21 to 28% would have a moderate to very significant impact on competitiveness. 75% said it would dampen investment and innovation, and 71% said it would hurt their ability to hire. Now, those survey results just came out today, and in a statement, Raytheon CEO Greg Hayes said, Keeping competitive tax policies in place is needed to help reinvigorate the U.S. economy and lead to more opportunities for Americans, especially after the pandemic. Now, Raytheon has projected it would have to pay an additional $1 billion under Biden's tax plan, and it warned it may slash R&D spending by 20 percent. Businesses across a wide range of industries have already begun to fight any tax hikes, even though they could be paired with a massive increase in government spending. The notable exceptions here have been Amazon and Lyft. Now, the Business Roundtable surveyed 170 CEOs, 178 CEOs, excuse me. The group would not provide any details, though, behind that 2% of respondents that said higher taxes wouldn't hurt them. But, Brian, it did say that not all companies would be equally affected by this. Back to you. Yeah, and it looks like, and we've heard from Joe Manchin, I guess, or at least sort of rumors out of the Manchin camp and maybe Kristen Cinema, that 28% might be a little less likely than, say, a 25%. Yeah, so I think one of the big questions here for the business community is, are they going to try to stop this train entirely and pick off the number one, two, three Democrats that would be needed in the Senate in order to, you know, block any type of tax increase or infrastructure bill? Or are they just going to try to mitigate the pain here? My sense is that right now they're trying to block this entirely and stop any tax hikes. But, you know, a couple of weeks down the road, would they be more willing to accept a smaller increase in the corporate rate? That's going to be part of the battle that they're going to fight over the next few weeks. I'm going to find out. I have a feeling the fight may have just begun. Elon Moy, thank you very much. All right, coming up, it's not just about taxes, folks. If you want to be a CEO these days, at least at a big company, you might want to add political activists to your resume. Corporate America is making voting access a foremost issue for them. But will companies really go just beyond words? That's ahead. But first, it is time for Show and Tell. We will show the chart and tell you the story. Today's chart is Uber. Uber is up more than 3%, in fact, nearly 4%. The company saw record gross bookings in March. This amid a driver shortage. CEO Derek Khosrowshahi addressing that shortage on the new show, Tech Tech, 
tech check just a short while ago. We certainly are going to lean into supply, and it's a great problem to have. Uh, and this is not only in terms of the Uber mobility business, but the delivery business continues to boom as well. We talked about uh, annual run rate exceeding $52 billion. And I think most companies in the world will want to have more demand uh, than supply. So it's a first class problem to have. We've got a news alert right now on, yeah, you guessed it, GameStop. It's probably either up big or down big, Josh Lipton. What's going on? <laughs> so, Brian, we do have news on GameStop. Reuters is just reporting here that GameStop is looking for a new chief executive to replace George Sherman, who was, remember, appointed to that position in April 2019. Reuters citing sources here. They say the board is working with an executive headhunter on the CEO search. Of course, this comes as activist investor and board member Ryan Cohen. He has some big plans for this company, pivoting this company from brick-and-mortar retail to more of an e-commerce player. But again, the headline here from Reuters, GameStop initiating a search for a new CEO. Back to you all. All right. Big news on GameStop. Stock down 8.5%. Josh, thank you very much. Well, another tech news. Microsoft is buying speech recognition and health tech company Nuance Communication. They're a company that's behind Apple's Siri technology, for example, and a $16 billion deal that is shaking up the world of tech and healthcare. Now, this was a merger that was actually probably more than a decade in the making, just maybe not in this package. If you've been watching CNBC for a while, you'll know that me and Herb Greenberg and others talked about Nuance potentially getting bought by Apple back in 2011. Of course, that didn't happen. Then about three years later, Herb Greenberg and me and a couple others talking about, oh, oh, look at that. Nuance may get bought by Samsung or maybe Apple. That was 2014. By the way, that didn't happen either. Fast forward to today, Microsoft. Third deal's the charm. Buying Nuance for 56 bucks per share, 23% premium compared to its previous closing price. John Ford interviewed both CEOs earlier today, and each said this could be a game changer for both the companies and the healthcare providers as we know them. This particular opportunity, when you think about the provider market, uh, in order for us to keep improving health outcomes and reducing costs, digital tech is going to be key. We have participated it, uh, in it as Microsoft on the IT side. But what Nuance and Mark and team have done is take that most critical part, which is at the point of care, and really transform it uh, with integrations with Epic, Cerner, and all the critical EHRs. And so to us, it'll double our total addressable market as Microsoft going forward. Not only will we be able to serve all the providers with everything we do in Microsoft 365, Dynamics 365, Azure, but Nuance will be able to help us deliver these AI-first solutions for doctors and radiologists and overall clinical decision support in partnership with the rest of the ecosystem. We're purpose-driven here at Nuance, very similarly to Microsoft, so the opportunity to really take you know, our AI capabilities alongside of the cloud-based capabilities that Microsoft and Azure and the Power Platform and Dynamics, uh, we really feel there's a great opportunity. We're, we're not only solving the industry's hardest problems, uh, but in healthcare, as one example, we believe we can create more access to care, and we believe that is a great calling for the two companies to come together for. All right, let's bring in John Ford and Daniel Newman, principal analyst at Futurum Research. John, okay, I'm, well, I'm easily confused, but I'm confused, okay? <laughs> you know Microsoft very well. Sachin Nadella, super savvy business partner. Nuance Communication is a roll-up company, a target of short sellers for years. People thought it was going to go away. The stock's been dead money for six years between 2013 and 2019. Nobody cared about nuanced communication. In fact, the stock lost money when the market was surging. What has changed? What is so suddenly attractive about nuance? Well, Brian, I think part of what's attractive is that in the past, when you talked about nuance all those other times and potentially it getting acquired, it was about general purpose 
voice technology, which was kind of interesting when Siri and Alexa were new, but I, I don't think has become a real business driver. It, it's become more part of an ecosystem. What Nuance has been able to do over the past few years is focus on cloud and then focus in on uh, industry, particularly healthcare, but they also have an enterprise unit that's important. And, and what they've managed to do is turn voice into a way to gather unstructured data and make a, a very important business process more efficient. In the past, with Dragon Naturally Speaking and some of these other ways uh, of doing voice, it was kind of like, oh, well, talk to your Word document and things will appear instead of typing. Well, I, I don't mm. know if that's so attractive. But if a doctor can manage to put information into a chart and improve the patient experience, focus more on the patient versus data input using this kind of technology and do it in a way that's HIPAA compliant, fits under regulation, and do it in a way that allows Microsoft more access to the adjustable market for healthcare, well, then that's really valuable. I guess, Daniel, my point is I'm looking to buy a car. Two years ago, the car was $25,000. Today, the car is $60,000. Did something change in those two years to make that car, if, if it did, please tell me, because maybe it did. They could have had Nuance for $20 billion less than two years ago, probably, with the same premium on the stock price at the time. Is the company 250% or whatever better than it was two years ago? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, bringing up everything, the confluence of all of the events of 2020, you had COVID-19, which brought a lot of attention to healthcare as a whole. And there's another set of forces, by the way, that are, that are going on right now, and that is the industry clouds. Companies, you look from AWS, from Microsoft and Google in the cloud, but also across the space, you look at NVIDIA's announcements just today about Clara, which is a, a set of AI tools that could take a 10-year uh, period of time to bring a drug to market and bring it down to two years. So we're seeing the way that AI is pushing the envelope in the delivery of services and how uh, companies are going to be able to, you know, be able to monetize experience. So we keep hearing about experience economy and we keep hearing about industry clouds. And essentially, this enabled Microsoft to double its TAM from about 250 billion to yeah. the numbers I'm seeing are nearly 500 billion in opportunity. So, yeah, they're paying a premium but they clearly believe this is going to help them capture that opportunity. Is it a bolt-on, John? Like, John, are they going to run it separately? Is it going to stay in Massachusetts? Or is it, is it somehow integrated into either, is Microsoft becoming a healthcare company, yeah. or are they going to integrate this product into other suites of software, Azure, whatever it might be, for healthcare? Well, it's integrating into the intelligent cloud unit at Microsoft. It's not going to remain as independent as LinkedIn did, for example. But, you know, I, I asked about, you know, not on air, but, you know, behind the scenes asked about the, the idea of synergies. Are they going to be laying people off as part of this? They said that's not their focus. So, you know, to your question about um, the value and two years ago versus now, well, part of this is Microsoft is a lot richer now than it was two years ago, right? And, and part of what uh, Nuance has managed to do at the same time is spin off a bunch of businesses, automotive, you know, some others that weren't really in this wheelhouse, focus in on healthcare and devote uh, some particular attention, engineering resources to that, yeah. build out software that has a really high net promoter score, meaning See, the customers really like it. It really serves that market at a time when Microsoft is now saying, okay, to grow in cloud, we need to focus on industries and specific high-quality solutions. It's what they need. So, Dan, you see what John did? John Fort, just my friend, just said I couldn't afford the car two years ago, <laughs> even at a cheaper price. Now I can afford the $60,000 car, so I should buy it. Was it a good deal? I think it's this, a smart deal. I think right now you're seeing premiums being paid. Um, we're looking at numbers. I still remember how surprised everyone was when IBM paid $34 billion for Red Hat. And you look at the fact that the company still has a way to go, but its bridge to be able to get into a space, into a market it sought to get into was that acquisition. So was there a premium paid? I think the same question it needs to be asked right, right now uh, about this particular acquisition. But this is going to speed time to market. And when you're talking about a company that's nearing $2 trillion in market cap, time is just as important in some, ca some capacities as what they're going to pay for this is how quickly can they get the solution and cement themselves as a leader in this particular yep. technology? So yep. 
Yeah, you know, maybe you paid a little bit too much for the car, but if you want to, you know, continue that analogy right now with the chip shortage, you may not get a car at all if you don't buy the car at the right moment in time. Or if you just really need a car, there you go. Daniel Newman, John Fort, great stuff. John, great interviews earlier today. Congrats on that. And congrats on Tech Check, my friend. Show looked great. New show, 11 a.m. Eastern. Congrats. All right, we'll check it out tomorrow and the next day. The next day. Coming up, more big-name CEOs speaking up and threatening states that pass any rules they feel restrict voting. A bold move or one that could backfire with customers? We'll discuss and debate ahead. Welcome back to The Exchange. Since baseball's call to move the all-star game out of Georgia, other companies are starting to get involved in pushback on laws that can restrict voting. In fact, just this weekend, some 100 CEOs held a call to discuss how they can apply pressure to states and governments. Axios' executive editor, Mike Allen, just wrote about it, and he joins us now. Mike, welcome. What can you tell us what was done and said on the call? Well, thank you. This is a big change in the posture of CEO. So this was a literal Zoom, uh, 90 top business leaders, 30 other uh, people who are on the call. And I'm told by people who are on the call that they kind of bucked up each other, that they had no fear of going ahead, challenging these states on voting uh, rights laws. Now, here's what's changed. Like, as you know, as your listeners, viewers know, CEOs have been very reluctant to plunge in to issues like this. But now they're not just taking stands, they're acting. So now many of these executives saying that they will, A, hold back campaign contributions, and B, hold back on investments in the state. So uh, building factories, building stadiums, all that's now at risk for states that move ahead on voting restrictions like Georgia's and that Texas is contemplating. Well, without getting into the semantics of whatever the rules might be, Mike, because I certainly haven't read all of them, 43, I believe, I even heard as high as 47 states are going to be doing some kind of voting change post-COVID, whether it's restrictive or not. I have no idea. One would assume that there's going to be tightening up of mail-in ballots. That's not going to leave a lot of states. That's kind of the point, Mike. If we get 40 or 43 states that actually, are they trying to prevent the states from doing it? Because otherwise your pool of opportunities sort of makes your threats probably ring a little bit hollow. Well, uh, that's a good point about the breadth of it. Just about every Republican-controlled state, and that is the majority of legislators and governor's mansions in the country, is pushing this direction. What we hear from the CEOs is an effort to calibrate. So what's changing is, like, they tell me, like, originally they just sort of took stands on issues. Now this is moving more into the activism uh, area. And this is the risk that you talked about in your tease from customers, from Republicans who in the past have always been their allies. So this is an effort to rein in what might be coming. Why are they doing it? This is kind of moving from opportunity to necessity. So the opportunity was Washington, yeah. which has been broken so long, companies moving in. The necessity now, a lot of their customers insisting on it, but even more What I hear from company after company is the employees insisting on it and people they want to recruit. I know at our company, when we hire people, people want to know about your mission, values. That's what's driving a lot of this. And listen, and and that, by the way, it might also win them customers, Mike, if a lot of people in America would agree with their position. And maybe they'll they'll actually try out that product or that company because of this. Now, let's go to the opposite, though. Let's say there's There's some dude, right, in Atlanta or New Jersey that's like, I'm not going to ever fly Delta or United again. And then they realize they have no options. I bet you live in New Jersey, you're flying United. You live in Georgia, you're probably going to fly Delta. You're probably going to drink Coca-Cola. You're probably going to use Google. These companies probably also know that they're making a social stand for their employees and some customers, but also customer boycotts don't work. They never have. No, that's a great point. And something else uh, that's changing that's reflected in what you're talking about is these executives no longer feel beholden to the Republican Party or no longer feel guided by the Republican Party. So ah. Jeffrey Sonnefeld of Yale, who uh, organized this call, so they're the maestro of this CEO summit. 
He knows all these executives very well. He talks to them uh, from uh, from Augusta. He talked to some of them and he knows that most of them are Republicans or not. One of them not super Trumpy, most of them not super Trumpy, but they are largely Republicans. So this is another change. Here's something else that uh, Professor yep. Sonnenfeld put his finger on is okay. that what Mike, he calls the avoidance Mike, strategy. I got to jump, Mike. I'm sorry. I got to jump in. I got to jump in, but stay there. Don't go anywhere. We're going to come back. I want to take you to the White House. Now we're getting some video from the meeting with the semiconductor shortage. It's an issue summit. that has broad support in the United States Congress. We talked about whether or not we're doing anything in terms of bipartisanly. Well, we are. Both sides of the aisle are strongly supportive of what we're proposing and I, and, and where I think we can uh, really get things done for the American people. In fact, today I received a letter from 23 senators, bipartisanly, and 42 House members, Republican and Democrats, supporting the CHIPS for America program. Now, let me quote from the letter. It says, the Chinese Communist Party aggressively plans to reorient and dominate the semiconductor supply chain, and it goes into how much money they're pouring into being able to be able to do that. But I've been saying for some time now, China and the rest of the world is not waiting, and there's no reason why Americans should wait. We're investing aggressively in areas like semiconductors and batteries. That's what they're doing and others. So must we. We are seeking a significant investment in, the, in this piece of legislation, and it's important, but we know it's not sufficient. The American Jobs Plan that I've put forward is part of about revitalizing American manufacturing and securing our supply chains, investing in research and development, as we used to in a very healthy manner. But it's also about much more than that. It's about investing in infrastructure, and infrastructure not for the 20th century, but the 21st century. It's not just roads and bridges. We're investing in water systems so Americans can have clean water infrastructure. We're investing in high-speed rail infrastructure. We're building charging stations to support America's electric future, electric vehicle future, and investing in that infrastructure. And building out American supply chains so we never again are at the mercy of another country or any other nation for their critical needs. That's what we mean by investing in infrastructure. And uh, we're investing in a more resilient grid. Investing, I understand you discussed that a little bit earlier today. Investing as well in, uh, in asbestos-free schools for our kids. That's investing in infrastructure. Building a support system to take care of our elderly parents and our kids with disabilities at home so that people can go to work. That's investing in infrastructure. Chips like the one I have here, these chips, these wafers, are batteries, broadband, it's all infrastructure. This is infrastructure. So look, we need to build the infrastructure of today, not repair the one of yesterday. And the plan I propose is going to create millions of jobs, rebuild America, protect our supply chains, and revitalize American manufacturing. And it's going to make America research and development a great engine again. We led the world in the middle of the 20th century. We led the world toward the end of the century. We're going to lead the world again. We're going to lead it again in the 21st century. We're, we have the best minds in the country. Many of them are on the screen right now. And they know better than anyone that our competitiveness depends on where you invest and how you invest. For too long as a nation, we haven't been making the big, bold investments we need to outpace our global competitors. We've been falling behind on research and development and manufacturing. And put it bluntly, we have to step up our game. And I'm not ready uh, to give up. I'm ready to work with all of you, with the Congress, both parties, to pass the American Jobs Plan and to make a once-in-a-generation investment in America's future. Again, we'll provide the innovation and spur breakthroughs. And we need, we need the support, all your support on the screen and others in order to get this work done. And we need you in turn to support the American workers, American communities in every part of the country. This is a moment for American strength and American unity, for government, industry, communities to work together 
to make sure that we're ready to meet the global competition that lies ahead, not continue to slide in terms of our investment. We rank like number 25th in the world now. That's not America. So I want to thank you all very much, and I uh, appreciate all the time you've given us. What I'm going to do, I'm going to see you all again in a few minutes. I have just took, taken the time, reason I was a few minutes late, to listen to the press conference. I'm preparing a statement, and I'll be happy to talk with you at the next meeting. Okay? Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. President Joe Biden speaking at the White House about his goals in getting this infrastructure and spending bill passed, where Mike Allen of Axios is still with us as well. And Mike, uh, you know, you heard the president's comments there. And based on what we were also just talking about, in some ways, are the Democrats becoming the party of American corporations? I mean, really, could the Republicans, should they go after union members? I'm not joking. Well, look at the stock market ever since uh, President Biden was uh, inaugurated and uh, look at how the markets have reacted to the stimulus and the spending. The two key words that we heard the president say there are that this is, quote, all infrastructure. The president's trying to push the definition of what's infrastructure, which uh, both parties like, which makes them the job party, and to include a lot more because you have Senate Republicans today on Axios trying to say that the president's Americans jobs plan is a job killing slush fund. So trying to describe that expansiveness in a different one, different way, the White House pushing back. And we're going to see a lot of this uh, in the coming days saying, "Okay, Mitch McConnell, here's what it means for Kentucky. Okay, Kevin McCarthy, uh, House Republican leader. Here's what it means for California. You have the president there holding a chip saying my program means jobs. It does. And of course, As we talked about, those semiconductor companies talking about maybe getting $50 billion in taxpayer-funded subsidies, that's what I mean. Those CEOs, they're going to want a piece of that as well. It does them well to have good relationships with the White House, with the president, Mike Allen of Axios, probably up since 2 a.m. Mike, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Speak to you soon. That does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.